Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today on a very special Dumb Money Live, we are doing something that financial gurus would never do. We're going to show you how we failed. We're revealing our biggest investing disasters with the hopes that you'll learn something from our mistakes. Today, I'm going to tell you about four trades that cost me $7.2 million. And I'm sure Chris and Jordan have similar stories to tell. Today on Dumb Money, the investing mistake we won't make again in 2024. This is Dumb Money Live. Hey there, Dave here, along with Chris and Jordan. We are Dumb Money. Welcome to Dumb Money Live, inching ever closer to that elusive 100,000 subscriber mark. Less than 100 to go. 100 away from me never having to ask you ever again to subscribe. But I will still need to remind you to smash the like button from time to time because liking the smash button and smashing the like button is the one surefire way to get the stock market to go to all-time highs. Chris Jordan... Uh, we know we like to talk about our best trades, but today we're revealing the worst and uh, how you can learn from our mistake. And I will tell you, I did my research. I dug into my old tax returns to bring you some actual data. I went way, way back. These, This is uh, 1997. So uh, every single... Remember when you used to have to list every single trade on Schedule D before they had those like consolidated boxes? I so, can't now, even imagine doing that. So I found some really, really, uh, and, and there's a theme behind behind my mistakes. And I'm sure you guys also have a theme. So where, where do you guys want to start? Yeah, I, I, I hope I didn't, I hope I didn't misunderstand the assignment today, because I wasn't quite thinking of like, here's my worst trade. I mean, that could be 100 episodes for me. I was thinking of like an overreaching kind of mind pattern or theme that I, I, I'm just not going to get wrong again. Like just as, just as an investor, right? Like not a specific trade, if that makes and that's, sense. And that's what I have too. I just brought examples of where this, this thing that I used to do ended up costing me $7 million. So for me, if there's one regret that I have, if there's one mistake that I've made as an investor the past five or six years that I will never make again, it is paying attention to the macro market, period. Um, I probably have lost a couple million dollars the past five years, five, six years, hedging my portfolio, you know, you know, buying insurance on my portfolio in various ways through shorting and options because somebody got me freaked out about the macro environment, um, about the market at large. And I think if we learn one thing in 2023, and we should have learned this a long, long time ago, there is no such thing as a market expert or an economic expert um, yeah. economists know absolutely nothing. If you put the top 100 economists in a room and ask them what was going to happen in the next 12 months, you would get a hundred different answers. 
and it economists can be good be historians. Economists are not future tellers, right? But but here's the thing. Look at 2023. Everybody got it wrong. I just want to read you a couple things here, right? So let's just start with like, I don't know, the largest investment bank in the world. We're top two, JP Morgan. I just read this, not just in the beginning of 2023, but how about after they had seven months to reflect on how 2023 was going? How did they think the rest of the year would pan out? This is what they said. JP Morgan Research, this is in on July 11th of 2023, expects to see a more challenging macro backdrop for the stocks for stocks in the second half of 2023. JP Morgan expected the S&P to end the year at 3900. We know where it ended. What? 4600? Yeah. <laughs> um every single investment bank, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, every major economist, every market expert everybody got it wrong okay and there was a point in early 2023 where i was still hedging my portfolio i was still trying to kind of assess the macro risk that we were hearing about every single day and it cost me a lot of money i'm just not going to do that again i'm back i'm 80 percent levered I don't care. I, I am. I am. I am long. I. You know. We. We. Dave. The. We say this to each other all the time. There. It, it always pays to be long in the long run, right? Like it's it just. I, I learned that so long ago. You just over three decades of investing. Yeah, you'll have your hiccups, but trying to time the market is never a good idea. At least you can't from, do it. You just not, can't do it. Yeah. And as I'll much as as again. much as you love stock charts and and uh what analysts have to say, I, I mean you, you, it's just it, it can't tell you what's going to happen in the future other than unless the world comes to an end, the market will eventually come out of whatever macro problem you're having in the moment. Yeah. I think the only time I would ever even consider paying attention to the macro market or to economists or people that were making you know, large predictions on which way the market would move is if there's a really, really strong consensus that we're going to go one way or the other, I would assume the opposite is going to happen. That's yeah, pretty yeah. much the only assumption I'll the, ever The make. inverse yeah. Kramer effect is, yeah, is kind of where that goes. And I think that, you know, it's not that, that the whole market isn't going to move. And there are things like when the the global pandemic was coming you know before it became a pandemic we were shorting the entire market because we saw something but that's an information edge not just a short term analyst or saying type of yeah, situation I, and i mean it like of a portfolio of my size there have been numerous times the last few years where i've lost a few hundred thousand dollars in a few months by hedging my account because I was concerned about a massive macro move that everybody was freaking out over. And like I said, it almost never pays out. If I can just go back and get all that hedging money back. Um, you know, I, I, the one hedge I, I, I'm glad I did was back when I was 
aggressively hedging Peloton for the last, the year and a half that it was going down. But, mm-hmm. it, but other than, but that was, that was more of a stock specific, you know, um, hedge. And I do want to say this, it, it, it is hard to some extent to get stock picking, right? It's impossible to get macro, right? For the most part, at least consistently. I think the, the, the one takeaway I have from everything I just said was focus on what you actually can control. Focus on things where you actually have alpha. You can actually generate alpha over individual stocks. We've done it time and time again. Our community has done it. We've done it. I've been doing it for you know 20 plus years. And you can actually achieve that. You can gain an edge on the market when it comes to a very specific narrative around an individual company. You might even be able to gain an edge and get some alpha as it relates to an entire sector like EV. Um, or in our case, you know, we're, we're so laser focused right now on robotics and humanoids. Um, I feel like I have a huge edge uh, when it comes to humanoid analysis and where that market's going. But as soon as you start getting bigger and bigger and thinking that, oh, I know the way the entire world is going to react to the financial markets and how global economies are going to unfold over the next 12 to 18 months. It just never works out. It's it's yeah. just it's just too difficult. Well, and I think that leads into my biggest mistake because <laughs> my biggest mistake ever is selling stocks. I should never have sold any stock that I've ever purchased because if I had, I'd probably have 10x what I do in my brokerage account right now. But really it's it's selling those companies that I like long term because of a short-term market move or because I made a quick gain or trying to stop the bleeding in a down market. So I did, I brought four examples going back to the days when you would file your taxes using TurboTax on a CD. Remember those? I still, I still have it. I have no way of installing that, but I still have it. Um, So this was, um, what, what year was it? Hang on. I, I don't have my notes, but I do have them here. This goes all the way back to 2004. I bought some shares in a little company called Netflix and I sold them a few months later. I bought $5,000, sold them for around $6,000. A $1,000 gain seems like a a good thing, right? Had I held those shares, today they would be worth $670,000. And at the high of $900,000. But it gets worse because I went all the way back to the oldest tax return I could find, 1997. Uh, I just graduated from NYU. Chris, you and I were living together in L.A. trying to break into the entertainment industry. My W-2 income for the year was less than $5,000. But we had been saving and we had been trading for years at that point. And um, in 1997, I sold. Let me make sure I got this right. Yes. I sold $5,000 worth, which of Apple? had, had gone Apple? down from, from uh, so I bought 10,000, sold it for 5,000, took a huge hit, right? Is that right? Was it Apple? No, no, I, I'm backwards, hang on. This is 97. <laughs> so I sold $50,000 of Microsoft for a $5,000 gain. 
Those I shares remember today, that you had a ton of Microsoft back then because it was Patrick my biggest was into Microsoft. Yes. And had I had I held on to those shares, they'd be worth $2.1 million. In 98 and 99, I continued buying and selling more Microsoft. It was my go-to like day trading stock for some reason. Yeah. Make a little money sometimes, lose a little money sometimes, but I was doing it in like 10 to fifty thousand dollar increments. I can't I can't even calculate if every time I bought, I just held. But I do know that that, that first sale was fifty thousand dollars, would have been worth 2.1 million today. In the year 2000, seven years before the iPhone, seven years before I was an Apple fanboy for life, uh, I sold Apple. I had only $5,000 worth, right? But that was the dot-com crash. It was 2000. The stock was down 70%. Um, its all-time high was just seven months earlier. And so I sold for a 50% loss. Um, had I held on to that $5,000 that I, I got $5,000 out, right? That would be worth $3.3 million today. <laughs> and finally, I sold my all-time favorite stock. You know what that is. It's not even a stock at all. It's an ETF. Oh, yeah. S&P 500. <laughs> In 2002, I sold S&P 500 shares. Uh, the market was down. It was down 30%. It was on its way to being down 45%. So at the time, it seemed like a great trade. But, and it actually kind of was a good trade from uh, 2002 until 2009 because the market was sideways to down. But eventually the market goes up. And had I just held on, I'd be up 600% from yeah. that point. So you gave up, what, 7 million bucks because of those few trades right there? $7 million because... Things that I like long-term, I just didn't have the stomach for as the market was going down or I was just taking a quick profit, which is why I, I can never sell my Apple, I can never sell my Amazon, and I can never sell my Tesla. Yeah, I, I feel like Jordan has experienced that same exact thing as it relates to Amazon and Tesla. I know those are two stocks that Jordan, I remember when he sold both, um, and I bet you wish you would have. You would have held both from back then. But it's um, about patience. Like you never know how long it could take Tesla to recover because it's so volatile. And looking back, Microsoft was hit by the dot-com crash after I was selling. It didn't get back to those highs for 14 years. So that could have, I would have been tying up maybe $100,000 for a very long time, but that $100,000 would be worth $6 million today. And, and to be fair, Dave, when it comes to individual stocks, I mean, personally, I, I do feel like you have to be careful with like a buy and hold forever. There are only, there are very few companies out there that are capable of being companies that you can trust for decade after yeah. decade. Um, no, absolutely. Time... And, and looking back at my old brokerage, uh, the, the returns and broker statements, trying to figure out what, what was I was doing or what I was thinking. Um, there are a lot of companies that don't exist anymore. There are a lot of companies that merged into other companies I couldn't even track. Like, yeah, I bought, I was buying, I worked at Yahoo. And so I was selling company stock <clears throat> all the time, all the stock options. I have no idea how to even track what that would be worth had I held on to it. But because it went yeah. up, but that is definitely not one to hang on to long term because now it's like, I guess barely. Yeah, for sure. well, I mean, that's the benefit of just investing in the S&P 500. If that's how you choose to invest is that they handle, you know, all of the evictions and uh, 
you know, all of that for you. And you're getting to uh, be rebalanced without having to pay taxes. I don't know why I sold my S&P 500. So if you're happy, why would I, why would I do that? Did I need the cash? Right. Um, I, so what about you, Jordan? What is your um, what is your your advice? Your not non-advice. Your stuck well, the stock thing mistake. That you're just right never going to do again. First of all, <laughs> I'm not a financial advisor. Never make. This is not advice. My biggest ones are around, um, also around shorting. Just um, holding on to a short too long for fear of a market drop. Right. Um, because I've actually done pretty well as far as time. Wait, holding short. on to a short for fear of a market drop? Well. Huh? Wait, wait, say that again. You said you said holding a short too long for fear of a market drop. That doesn't make sense. Well, I, you, I, How does that not make that sense? Back. Holding a short is a hedge. Because I'm afraid. Oh, okay, gotcha. Okay, now, I, now just, I get what you're saying. Instead of just yeah. being happy that I, you know, I, I timed some local top. I got my short was doing well. And now I think, you know, oh, well, the market's going to keep dropping instead of realizing the market's going to go up over time and bouncing out of that short. Yeah. So you use same as me then, right? Like, cause yeah. you would hedge a lot. You're fairly conservative and you're, you're always kind of nervous that. In fact, but know. I've learned from it because the last half of last year, I did not short at all, and I'm glad I didn't. Um, you know, because there were there were a few pretty good drops in the S and P, you know, in the third quarter. But um, you know, would I have closed those out in time for that big, you know, for the for the skyrocket of the S and P that happened uh, in the fourth quarter? Yeah, no, I I think that's something that I've seen through your trading, Jordan. And I'm glad you finally took some of those bigger hedges off because unlike me, you're not even like, you're kind of like always hedge because you always have a cash position too. So it's not like you're hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, for me, fully invested would have like 10% cash. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, th and I think I, that, yeah. that kind of explains our risk tolerance chris is already 80 percent leveraged jordan needs cash and would never get more than less he, he would always keep at least 10 percent cash and i like to kind of bounce between zero in my account i'm i am leveraged right now but mainly because i didn't want to sell stocks and i needed to uh basically take a margin loan so that i could uh live my life there's another mistake that we've all made i want to i want to just out all of us on this uh i think everybody makes this mistake sometimes we allow tax and tax implications to impact our trading behavior and more often than not that's not smart so you know what i mean I, sometimes yeah. we not selling because you're waiting for it to flip to long-term gains yeah, she want the long term the, the gain swing. on something, so you hold it longer than you should. Well, that was also, my problem with Peloton, right? In that, uh, I I sold like I sold like half of Peloton for a short short term gain, which was great. I did well, um, but then I held the rest, hoping for a long term gain. It ended up just breaking even, on wiping the, you on out. The yeah, trade. but but also, how about when you're just up so much? in a stock that you don't want to take the tax hit, right? Because once once you take the tax hit, now you're working with less capital. Um, 
and so you kind of feel like, well, I, 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 I think the opportunity cost of having my money sit in this stock is is high because I could be investing in this better thing, but you just can't make the switch because the tax hit is so large because you've been in it for so long and have made so much money in that stock and it's too painful to take the tax hit on it. I think um, you're describing I, the problem of being 80% leveraged because if you were if you were 5% leveraged, it wouldn't matter. You would just buy whatever you wanted on margin. But the way you like triple stack yourself, you you can't afford to buy more of that without selling something else. No, I'm paying. I just checked. I'm paying. No, I do have reduced rates that I've negotiated because of the size of my account and the activity and my. You know, I've been with my broker on and off for decades now. Even though I've gotten acquired three times, but I'm paying like seven and a half percent margin, and that's on like. Somet sometimes that's on five or six million dollars. So I'm paying like 400,000 a year in interest fees on that margin alone. Um, tax deductible. It is tax deductible, which is which is nice. Um, I, I feel like another that? lesson that I if we that's were a, if that's we a very expensive show... mortgage you're paying, by the way. 30,000 yeah, $30, dollars a month. <laughs> If if this show was like 15 or 16 years ago, uh -huh. I, I, I would have said that one of the lessons that I'll never, that I'll, one of the, one of the mistakes I'll never make again is being too diversified. I, I think, again, yeah. this is, this is personal. It's not financial advice. This is for me. I Diversification kills returns, right? Like it's just, there's no way it's really, really difficult if your goal is to outperform the market. It's exceptionally difficult to outperform the market when you're overly diversified. It just it just is. Um, that's not everyone's goal, but my goal has always been to four to seven x whatever the market you know return is, and you just can't do that with diversification. So I, I'm really comfortable being concentrated, and that's something that I think takes time uh, to have you know, 70% of your portfolio in three stocks. Yeah. Uh, that's not something that a lot of people can tolerate. It's something that I'm so comfortable with now that I start to get anxiety. And this happened to me last year. When I'm in too many stocks, I start to get anxiety. I'm like, I I'm way too diverse. Because well, you can't keep up. Like, you have no idea what you're even in anymore. It's like, I, I remember in older shows, you would like go on your account and just go, oh, wait, I still own that. And that's yeah. that's it a real problem. I had a clean shot. By the way, if someone like Graham Stephan was watching this episode, hearing me say this, he'd have a heart attack right now. It's like, you can't be too diversified. But by the way, I, I watched one of his episodes yesterday and he just, I feel like in every other show that he does, he talks about the fact that he's never going to sell a stock. So I feel like that's where, that's who's influenced you, Dave, in, in, in your big mistake. Because he talks about how he, I don't think he's ever sold anything he's he's ever purchased. Well, he primarily, I mean, he's, he's a little more diversified now, but he's primarily a ET S and P ETF guy. Right. And as long as you're consistent sold. and you hold it, it's historically never done poorly. Right. For um, over longer periods of time, even, um, even though it can go 15 years, like, like my Microsoft example. And that's where I've also been heavily concentrated in just a handful of stocks, pretty much my entire investing career, probably because you and I used to sit around in high school and read the newspaper and check stock quotes in the library. 
and <laughs> you and I were just ridiculous about it. So, yes, your um, your bad influence of not having more than five stocks in my portfolio at a time, uh, really. Um, but I try to balance yeah. it out by having the S and P and or a triple leveraged S and P, which I, which I also love. There, there is another investment mistake that I want to talk about. And I think it's relevant for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people these days are invested in funds and ETFs specifically. And you think, okay, ETFs are low fee. I don't need to think about the fees. But now more than ever, it's really important to not ignore the fee structure, even yeah. within ETFs that you're invested in. Because the ETF market has become so competitive that by switching from you know maybe Vanguard to BlackRock, uh, you might shave off two tenths of one percent on a nearly identical ETF. And the yeah. reason for that is that a lot of these ETF providers have started to like remove or or massively reduce fees for a set period of time, like six months or one year, and. To where if maybe they had a fee of three-tenths of 1%, but for the next six months, it's only one-tenth of 1%. I've noticed that a lot lately. So anyone yep. who's invested in ETFs, I highly recommend to look at all the competing ETFs that have a similar theme or tracking methodology and see if you could shave you know, a tenth of a point or two-tenths of a point off of your internal management fee structure by simply switching from one to another. And specifically, if you have this money in a company-sponsored plan, like a 401k, a lot of times the investment, the options they give you in those plans are limited to the company that is sponsoring the plan. So you're going to be paying higher fees. Always look at those fees yeah. because that I, I found that and a lot of times you can roll your retirement funds into just an individual IRA or a Roth IRA and be able to have access to any investment and get a lower fee. And the difference between the SPY and the VOO, which the reason I like VOO uh, is it is a 0.03% fee where the SPY is a 0.09% fee. I and found a better talking, one, Dave. We're talking Dave, about a, a, a very minuscule difference, but over time, it adds up. Dave, Dave, there's a better one because I was just helping a family member uh, invest their retirement. And one of those ETFs is now down to, I think, 0.02. So you, you can save another yeah. tenth there if you look right now. Um, it's exceptionally important. In fact, I just want to remind everyone of this. It doesn't seem like a lot, but this family member that I was helping was actually paying a total of about one percentage point annually on all of their money, right? Over 40 years with compounding, that could end up costing you 50% of your net worth, okay? So I was able to get that down to about two tenths of 1%, even a little less. I think I think even a little less. I think it was like point, you know, it was like 0.015 uh so 15 hundredths of one percent so 
really analyze those ETF fees and regularly check them because they're always changing. <laughs> That's oh, by the yeah, way, so the Bitcoin that, ETF. Uh, you know, the, um, some the Bitcoin ETFs. I think I've heard that they have promo rates and that they are super low right now. But once they get to a certain, you know, asset under management size, that they'll bump them up to, you know. Yeah. Jordan, they're going down every day. Like they're down now to like, they were at three temps. Now they're, at, I think two temps. Yeah, but I think it's a promo. Day, they went down again. Yeah. So they could end up being free by the end of next week. Like, so if you're- <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised because they're trying to get you to get your money in. Because they know that you're going to have a taxable event if you're not doing this in a retirement account. You're going to have a taxable event to sell out of theirs just to get a slightly different fee. And if you're planning to jump from one uh, crypto ETF to another crypto ETF that does the same thing, paying taxes now versus later might actually mean something to you. Yeah. 100%. Um, so It's good marketing. Not, yeah. Not a whole lot of sexy stuff in today's episode, but um, I, but I will Chris, say that these are acquiring minds want to know what that S and P five hundred ETF that has the point zero one percent is. Do you remember? Yeah, I'm seeing in the comments yeah. that uh, it, it, a Schwab mutual fund. Has it might a have been Schwab. There's not that many of them. If you check Schwab and Vanguard and BlackRock and just look at all three. So here's what's interesting. You won't see it at first. I think it might have been BlackRock, actually, because it was a again, it was like a promo rate. It was like it was like for, it was through July of 2024. They were taking, you know, one tenth off of their fee structure. So I think they were, and it, and it lowered it to like meaningfully lower than, yeah. than the next ETF. So um, by the way, I do want to let the community know that I'm working on some some big social arb trades right now. Uh, I'm actually really excited. So maybe next week we can actually go back and do one show on social arb trades for January because there are some really interesting ones that I'm working yeah. on. Uh, I'm talking about some of the themes in Discord. I'll just let you know like one of the themes that we're looking at right now. And this is in the trade research channel of Discord. I have noticed that dry January this year is the biggest dry January we have ever seen. I believe that's a result of strong, healthy living tailwinds, as well as numerous content creators that are publishing content on dry January that went viral. And all of a sudden, dry January has become like the coolest thing for millennials and Gen Z to participate in. In fact, at my restaurant, waiters are hearing tables talking about dry January asking for mocktails, um, I am projecting that we'll probably have triple to quadruple the participation rate of people not drinking alcohol in January. And that is going to have, I think, a meaningful impact on alcohol companies, potentially on restaurants. Um, and there could be companies that would benefit 
from this trend. Now, Dave, you're not able to see the data yet because we're just starting January. So the January yeah. data isn't really going to show up properly. But if you you might want to already at a all time high on U.S. five years. But you're only looking at partial January data. Dave, if you yep. were to look at a 12, no, move it to 12 month, Dave, move it to 12 month. And I know 12 month is imperfect, but you will is, see, uh, look at how much month. higher we are towards, right? The tail end, the last half of January from last year to the first half of January now. And then you could also check like the word mocktail as well. And you'll see how many people are searching for that. I'm telling you, it is a big deal this year and is going to have an outsized impact, I think, that I don't think a lot of people really are anticipating. Uh, and I know I know alcohol companies generally are down uh, the last six to eight months because of this general thought that people are drinking less. But that's an interesting chart on mocktail. That's a five year chart on mocktail. Yep. Do you remember the year that Movember like went viral? Like, like it had been around every year, but there was one year in particular where it went viral, and it actually had a major impact on Gillette razors. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. I feel like this is that moment for dry January. And was it was it twenty nineteen? That because it like looks it, like that was a peak, and then it's been dwindling ever since. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell because I'd have Who knows? to see it could have been before that because we can't go more it. than five years. But social media is getting—I mean, it, the the virality is become so big <laughs> that these things are are are. It's it's amazing how how something could just take over the world, like a movement, right, yeah. or or like a trend. And could impact hundreds of millions of people because people are just seeing it across, you know, across their channels. So, all right. So, anyway, if you want to, uh, check our our mocktail uh, episode. You make sure you're a subscriber to this channel. It's not because... the trade, though. That's not the big trade. But but th th that's just one of the themes that I'm that I'm researching right now. But I have I have in a, a trade, and I haven't even revealed it in Discord yet. And I, I'm just astonished by how well of a holiday season this company has had. And I'm not going to reveal it today, but I will reveal it next week. But but my goodness, like it, it, this, what this company is doing is just completely blowing my mind. Anyway, we'll talk about that next week. We yes. are going on a little dumb money road trip here a, a day trip uh to visit with our humanoid company so we'll have some humanoid maybe we'll do another humanoid show next week as well right we're, we're gonna have the ceo on next week maybe or the week after hopefully yeah i don't know if it's scheduled yet but we're trying to uh to arrange a live interview with the uh, ceo of aptronic out of austin texas and we are just about to jump in the car take a road trip so we can go meet these robots in person. If anyone has an amazing podcast for us to listen to on the way to Austin, uh, please, I don't know, email it to what, what do we, hi at dumb, what's our email, Dave? 
We are, I think all, any way you say hello, I think hi at dumbmoney.tv will get to all three of us, I think. Yeah. E e email us a podcast if there's a great one, because we have about six hours of car time to fill. And if not, I'm going to make you listen to the uh, JFK conspiracy theory uh, that Rob <laughs> Reiner and Soledad O'Brien put out, because I get, oh, I get good? so into that. It's is good. It, wait, is it good? I'll, I'll bring headphones. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Oh my gosh. All right. Um, all right, guys. I'll pick you up at 115. Perfect. I will see you then. And for the rest of you watching at home, we will see you next week. Oh, wait, Dave. Dave, wait. What? You have you haven't even asked. We're at 99,900. Wait, we're actually 99,900 and what 18 uh 928 right? at this point we so need we're, like, we're really closing in on that hundred thousand mark so close guys guys there's we have to hit it today you guys have to help us hit this today that way we can celebrate tonight in austin um if if you guys know be... 72 people who are not yet subscribed to this channel we can make it happen all you have to do is text your friend, tell them you think this channel is amazing and that you really, that they really should watch because we're, I mean, you're watching. So clearly you like what we're doing. So uh, this would be a great time to, to text a friend or 72, whoever put the, the first 72 people in your phone book, just go ahead and text them right now. Will we be able to know who's the 100,000th sub? Is there any way to know There's that? no way to track down that information. Oh, that sucks. That sucks. Um, thank, thanks to all you guys. And thanks for being around since 2000. <clears throat> That's a long time. Woo! 2000. Um, yeah, some someone said they've been around since 2000. Who, who, who's well, an OG? years ago, we were not doing this. 24 well, years ago. Like 20, uh, oh, no, 2020. 2018 no, I, who's been around since like 2007? 2017 is when we were started. 17. Up, right? There we go. 17, yeah. 16, 17. Um, yeah, on a whim after uh, after I was I, doing travel blogs and you wanted to do something money related. Oh, what, one more shout out to uh, Be The Trader, like the letter B, The Trader YouTube. Uh, he did a really cool interview with me that I'm going to say, and I tweeted this, is my favorite interview. It, I've done a lot of interviews that I love, but this I thought was the best interview I ever did as it relates to just communicating what our methodology is um, of social ARB investing. Um, it's a one hour interview. I highly recommend you all go over there and you know, put it on 1.75x speed and watch it. Because if you want to understand how do you become a social arb investor, uh, what is this observational investing strategy all about? In addition to very specific examples of how I kind of went about finding these trades and vetting these trades, we talk a lot about the community. Um, I thought. I thought I was at my best in this interview, just explaining exactly how we do what we do um, and how we execute these types of trades. It's really great in just one hour. It's, you can watch the whole thing in like 35 minutes on 1.75x. So highly but, recommend. Sorry, Chris, that is not what we'll be listening to on the uh, drive today. 
No, not us. I've, not I've, us. Heard, I've heard enough of you. No, I don't want to hear. I listen. I listened to the whole interview and I loved it, but I'll never watch it again. I can't. I can't do that. I, I drive myself nuts. Um, all right, guys. Thank you for everything, and uh, yeah, we'll see you at 100K. Thank you.